You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 138 of the Common Descent Podcast. Today we are discussing the moon. That's kind of a weird choice. Yeah, it is a little bit. So the moon may seem like it's not really connected to most of the things we typically discuss. You know, it's not evolution. It's it's a, a space rock. There's no fossils up there. No, but having a moon fundamentally shapes the way life lives here on Earth. Yes, the Earth is a system that includes the moon. And so... Discussing the moon and understanding how it affects our planet is actually crucial to understanding the evolution of life on our planet. So in this episode, we will look at what is a moon? What is our moon? You know, let's define the term. (laughs) How does it affect our planet? How does it affect life on our planet? And how has life responded to the presence of the moon? And how do we think we got a moon and how do we see its effects throughout earth's history and our fossil record it's gonna be a pretty cool discussion it's i'm so excited for this discussion i i mean it's come up multiple times anytime i get to talk about space on this podcast (laughs) i'm happy well this one's fun because it is kind of sort of literally a backing up a Mm. zooming out to look at the very big picture of our planetary system. Absolutely, yes. Taking a look at how life on our planet is set up in this Earth-Moon system. Yeah. And we will be discussing this because it was requested. This topic was suggested by Milu, Jackie, and Rob. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, great suggestion. This was so much fun. (laughs) And before we get on to that discussion, let's get some announcements out of the way. First announcement, as usual, is that we have a Patreon. And that Patreon funds the podcast top to bottom. It allows us to go on trips, buy equipment, keep our systems up and running. And when you sign up with our Patreon, you get some bonus goodies, bonus news, bonus content, but also your name shouted out at certain levels. And we like to greet our new patrons at these levels by saying, welcome, Tom, Clint, and Brendan. Welcome, and thanks to our new patrons and our old patrons. Yes, thank you all for your support. Thanks for quite literally keeping the lights on. We have a couple of other announcements about some bonus content coming up and that we just did. Recently, we just did a Discord Q&A. Yeah, we had a chit-chat with a bunch of our Discord community where we talked about documentaries. Mm -hmm. And we've got plans to do monthly chats like that for the foreseeable future. On the third Saturday of every month, we should be getting on Discord and we'll have some starter topic to start the discussion and then we'll open things up to questions. It was a great discussion. So if you're on Discord, check those things out. And if you're not part of our Discord yet, check the episode description for the link. You too could be part of our Discord community. Yeah, and the community's been real great. So it's it's growing so well. Check it out. The other bonus content that we have is coming up this summer, which is Croc and Snake Month. Yeah, we are doing for the first time the inaugural Croc Month and Snake Month for this year, 2022, in June and July. So we will have content focused on snakes and crocodiles, a couple of bonus things 
that will be coming out. We're still planning all the details, but we will be announcing them as we get closer. Yeah, those announcements should come out soon because June is coming up pretty quick. Yeah, it's right around the corner. So keep your ears out for that and hope you enjoy Croc and Snake Month. We will. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Well, we'll each enjoy half of it. Oh, yes. No, I will en- <laughs> we'll enjoy the best half. <laughs> and with that, we can wrap up announcements and move on to the first section, our news. Every episode, we like to gather up recent science, earth science, paleontology, evolution news about research and recent findings. This keeps us all up to date and lets us see what's going on in the scientific world. David, what's been happening with science? I've got some news about pterosaur colors. Oh. Yeah. This is research that reports the remains of pigments in an exquisite specimen of a pterosaur from Brazil and reveals interesting new things about pterosaurs and the evolution of the way that they looked. Ooh, all right. This research was presented in a new study in the journal Nature by Ode Sincata et al. And in the blog post, every episode there's a blog post afterwards on our blog episode in the description with links and photos and stuff. All the newses will be linked there. The link in the blog post for this news will be an article in Scientific American by Riley Black. So pterosaurs, the flying reptiles of the Mesozoic era, episode 79, had this fuzz on them, which scientists often refer to as pycnofibers, which might be feathers. There's actually been some back and forth on whether or not these are the same thing as feathers, whether they share an ancestry with feathers or if they're just something similar that is independently evolved. And like dinosaur feathers, these have pigment molecules sometimes preserved. We've talked about this on the podcast, where we can find evidence of pigmentation, that is the colors, by seeing the molecular shapes of pigment-containing structures called melanosomes. Different melanosomes have different shapes, and they tend to, the different shapes tend to be linked to different coloration. Previous reports of melanosomes preserved in pterosaurs have found that the melanosomes are relatively samey, these sort of rounded melanosome shapes that other research has suggested might mean that pterosaurs had relatively simple coloration Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because they have relatively simple melanosome diversity. Although it's worth pointing out that there are other ways to make colors in the skin and in hair and in feathers. It's not just melanosomes, but potential inference. Mm -hmm. And if that was true, some researchers have just suggested that if pterosaurs did have relatively simple coloration, maybe that's a hint that these feathery structures were more for something like keeping warm rather than display features, which would be more like what we see in other reptiles, relatively simple melanosome configuration. Not to say that other reptiles aren't colorful, but at least this type of color foundation is different from what we tend to see in things like birds. This research uh, changes this a bit. Yay. The researchers examined a specimen of a pterosaur called Tupandactylus from the early Cretaceous of Brazil. It is a beautiful specimen with lots of soft tissue preservation around the skeleton, including skin and pycnofibers. The specimen was originally removed illegally from Brazil, like a lot of fossils unfortunately are, but happily repatriated earlier this year. So it is back in the country where it belongs. That's awesome. This research does a couple of things. First... They do discuss a bit the shapes and structures of the pycnofibers, of the fuzziness. And they 
make the proposal, make the argument that based on these various structures, these should be considered feathers. Okay. These authors fall very firmly on the, these are basically the equivalent of early stages in the evolution of feathers. And we'll talk about why that's significant here in a little bit. Now, they're not the only researchers to make that suggestion. The other thing that they do, and the thing that is kind of the the star of this new research, is they document more diversity in melanosomes, more diversity in pigments. In addition to the old rounded shapes that we've already known, they find more elongate forms, so more a more advanced diversity of melanosomes, and they found that there are three different shapes, different types of melanosome shapes in this specimen, one in the skin and two in two different kinds of pycnofibers, two different shape structures of the feathery features. All right. So not just different colored fibers, but different fibers with different colors. Yes. Tissue specific coloration. Cool. That the skin and then the different forms of integument had different coloration. That's neat. Which is very cool. Now, they don't go as far as trying to interpret what the colors would be. And there is a note, I think Riley's article has a note that's, that points out that basically there has been some uncertainty, especially recently, about just how confidently we can do that. Mm-hmm. Say what color from what melanosomes. But they do make the point that that seems to suggest different colors on different regions of the body, which is very cool. Absolutely. This not only is similar to things we see in birds and mammals, but also suggests that these pterosaurs were indeed using these melanosome pigments probably for visual communication, probably to be diversely colorful. This is really interesting uh, for a couple of reasons. One, colorful pterosaurs awesome yes like that's, that's how i want my terrorists yeah that's to be. really really neat and the idea that they were indeed displaying I, I would have been surprised if we had not come across evidence of coloration right. and if not in their fuzz in the skin and surely there would be coloration yeah. of one form or another especially with the really in, uh, advanced head crested groups like yeah. surely you were doing something with that flag on your head. But it's neat to actually have some evidence that they were at least somewhat complexly colored, you know, that they were not just one color tone, that they had patches of different colors in specific areas. But also tissue-specific coloration is really neat, especially for me, the fibers, that you have different fibers for the different colors. Yeah. That's very interesting. I don't know enough about animal coloration to know if we see that regularly in other groups where it's like you know yeah the downy feathers on these birds typically is this color and then the other feather like i don't know enough you can definitely get birds today where if you think of like primary feathers Mm -hmm. versus secondary feathers might be different colors or the weird like if you've got bristles Mm -hmm. or patches of skin that are different color than the feathers themselves so you definitely can get these different tissue specific colors yeah it's just for me i had never thought about it being because of the type of feather Mm -hmm. i always thought of it because of the area of the body and that might be what this is where it's like you know because like fur you have stripes on fur but the fur in a tiger stripe and outside the tiger stripe are not different right types of fur and this could be your different types of fuzz your different types of feathers 
are serving different purposes. And that's that's yeah. where that's where I'm interested because that <laughs> I was not expecting. Now, the other thing that's really exciting about this is it ties into the whole question of why Feathers on Pterosaurs is kind of a big deal in the first place. Because there is this question of when did feathers first evolve? Mm -hmm. For a long time, we thought feathers were just a bird thing. And then over the last few decades, we have gotten lots of definitive evidence of feathers across a variety of dinosaur groups. Pterosaurs are not dinosaurs. They are outside of the dinosaur family tree, which means if pterosaur feathers and dinosaur feathers are indeed the same structure, that they share an ancestry, that would indicate that feathers evolved before either of those groups evolved. Yeah. That like their shared ancestor had these features that had feathers and both groups inherited them. Yes, exactly. And if that's the case, it would mean that earliest dinosaurs would have at least had the potential yes. for feathers. They might not have been expressing them, but they would have ancestrally had the genes and the potential to evolve feathers. And since these authors are among those who argue that that is the case, that pterosaur feathers are truly feathers, that indicates that feathers would have a deep origin. But in this research, that this takes it one step further to suggest that colorful feathers might have a deep origin. Not only that the shared ancestors had feathers, but that the shared ancestors might have had colorful feathers for display purposes already before either pterosaurs or birds inherited that ancestral feature which makes sense to me like it, it oh yeah if you have a body covering like that it makes sense that there would be heavy selection pressure on all the ways you could utilize that covering yeah now i guess it's possible that the coloration evolved independently yes in both groups but this at least raises the potential that there were some colorful fuzzy triassic weirdos crawling and climbing around before the familiar versions showed up later absolutely <laughs> very cool yeah well speaking of eye-catching fossils my news is about a spider fossil that glowed under fluorescent light oh cool yeah this is research by allison olcott et al in nature communications earth and environment and the article is by carly casella in science alert so these, uh, this is multiple spider fossils, not just a single one. But these fossils come from an Oligocene-aged fossil site in France, which is about 23 million years old. And they were studying these fossils. And the way the article put it was, on a whim, put it under a fluorescent microscope. Hmm. Just to see it and saw a glowing outline, basically, of the spiders. Nothing ridiculous. They said it was still subtle, but that there was a notable fluorescent outline around the fossils. Interesting. This got them to look deeper into the chemistry of the fossil. Now they were curious, okay, what is going on? What is the actual chemical story of these fossils? So they analyzed them with a couple other scanning techniques and revealed a couple of interesting contents to the minerals, both of the fossil and the minerals surrounding the fossils. One is that Basically, all of it contains silicon. And then the other thing they noticed was that darker patches in areas of the fossil showed high quantities of carbon and sulfur. And then they also noticed, and this is all going to come together in the end, <laughs> in this sediment, there were fossils of diatom, microalgae diatoms, that would have been forming mats in the sediment. Right, right. 
This leads to some interesting interpretations. Uh, first, diatom mats and microalgae mats like this have been hypothesized to maybe be one of the things that helps really delicate fossils like spiders preserve so well that by growing over them and sealing them off from oxygen, they might help them not degrade so quickly. Right. And let the softer, more delicate, you know, inverts like this and other plants and amphibians and stuff preserve better in fossil sites like this. Yeah, we've talked in the past about fossils preserved in algal or bacterial mats. We had a news maybe last episode about footprints mm -hmm, mm -hmm. left in bacterial mats. But these other findings indicate that it might not just be them covering up the fossil, that there actually may be some chemistry going on that makes the fossil hardier, preserve better, and more resilient. Oh, the fossil, the, the remains are reacting with the diatoms in the mats. Yes, specifically some goop that the diatoms would be producing. These algal mats produce their own ooze that holds them together, and in this ooze is lots of sulfur. Sulfur, it seems, has potentially cross-linked, reacted, and strengthened with the carbon in the spider exoskeleton and created a polymer that is stronger than it would have been beforehand. Okay. And so it seems that the mat growing over the fossil may have actually reacted and reinforced the spider exoskeleton so it could be fossilized more easily. Right, sort of creating a hard shell, mm -hmm. almost, or like a candy shell around the remains. It's also interesting because they found other spots in the sediment where there are heavier amounts of carbon that did not cross-link like this, which indicates that it was indeed the algae mat reacting with the spider exoskeleton. Right, something about the spider remains. Yeah, the organic carbon. Yeah. And spider exoskeletons are carbon-heavy. Sure. So they, it makes sense that they would react this way. This is not like an unknown chemical reaction, which means that this could be one of the answers to why fossils preserve so well at this site. Mm. If this is happening with other organic carbon in the fossils that they found. Now, this is still a hypothesis that is being kind of put together sure. and tested, but they did look through the literature of other similarly aged fossil sites and found that a majority of them show signs of being preserved in diatom-rich sediment. Ooh. So this may be a new insight into why, what is going on when we get delicate fossils preserved in sites like this. Uh, this is also the first time diatoms were noticed from this site specifically. Wow, that's a whole lot of really cool inferences. Right? It is always, you know, when you started this and you talked about spiders fluorescing, my immediate thought was, oh, well, like scorpions mm -hmm, mm -hmm. will glow under UV. Did these, is this something that remained? Did these spiders glow? No, the glowing was the result of a unique chemical structure that is part of how the fossil was preserved in this unique sediment. That's awesome. Yeah, And I have no clue why it glowed. Uh, they didn't mention anything about what why why it caused it to yeah, glow. <laughs> it's just a different mm -hmm. chemical makeup there that caught the light that differently. Happened to do that, man. I like every now and then we get a news and we and I think, man, this would have been great in front of a different episode. This would have been great in front of episode 123 <laughs> for spiders. Yep. But it also is a great news for last episode about fossilization and our continuing 
investigations to understand the details of how and why different things fossilize differently under different conditions. Absolutely. Because that's so cool because this kind of thing means that if this is true and if this relationship between the diatoms and the sediment and the organic remains does have this preservational benefit, then if you are a researcher wanting to study these kinds of organisms, you want to look for diatoms. Yep. You want to look for diatomaceous sediment. That's very cool stuff to know. Absolutely. And if we find another fossil site and we go, oh, I, I think I have a spider. Let's check for diatoms here, too. Yeah. Is this also happening here does, or is something does different this have happening? A, does this have a glowing outline as <laughs> <Yeah>. well? <laughs> That's awesome. See, now I'm picturing it like the spider that bit Peter Parker in the old comics and cartoons. Just, woom, woom, yeah. Just glowing. That little, that little glow around it. <laughs> well, while on the note of microscopic things, I've got a bit of news here. About deformed pollen. Oh, weird. Yeah, no, this one's cool. It's weird, and it's cool. This is research that is investigating the conditions that cause pollen to develop wrongly and how we might use pollen as an indicator of environmental stresses in the fossil record. That makes tons of sense. It's pretty cool. This is research in the journal Paleobiology by Jeffrey Benka et al., and we will link in the blog post to a press release on phys.org by Timothy Kenny of the Burke Museum. Pollen, as we've mentioned in the past, is extremely useful for paleontologists because pollen is very abundant, it's very sturdy, and pollen can be a great indicator of environmental conditions, of climate conditions and all sorts of stuff. This research, like I mentioned, is looking to use pollen as an indicator of environmental stress. Were things bad, and does the pollen reflect that? To do so, they looked specifically at the pollen of conifers, so pines and other things like pines, that produce winged pollen grains. Yeah. So the pollen itself has these two little outgrowths, which are called sacci, which are little, they're not quite wings, but they're these little outgrowths, these little flarings of the outside of the pollen that catch the wind and help them be dispersed in the air. So cool. The conifer species they looked at typically produce a pair of these little wings, two. But malformations are known, basically cases where the pollen develops incorrectly and something goes haywire along the way, and they will often end up with wrong numbers of wings. You can get single-winged pollen, you can get three-winged pollen, and it's just sort of, you know, think of like an animal that grows an extra finger. Just yeah. Something went weird during the development and the DNA got kind of wonked up. It ends up being different. Something that happens during the ontogeny of the pollen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This research started by looking at 14 species of living conifers under good conditions. What they called near-optimal conditions. <laughs> and the way that they, they confirmed near-optimal conditions is that mostly they were looking at trees from their local botanical garden. <laughs> As I say, they asked the trees, <laughs> how happy are you? <laughs> that the botanical garden where they are cared for and treated, uh, this is about as happy as conifers are ever going to get. Yeah, human care trees. <laughs> and they found by surveying the pollen among these trees that for most of the species, these pollen grain malformations only appear in less than 3% of the pollen grains. So they happen, but they're pretty rare. This offered them a baseline. This is what it looks like when conditions are perfect. Then 
They examined uh, specifically mountain pine that was grown under varying levels of high ultraviolet B radiation. Mm. And they chose UVB radiation partially because it's known to mess with pollen formation, right? Ultraviolet rays, this is not exclusive to pollen. Ultraviolet rays are known to cause genetic defects or disrupt genetic processes during development. But also because high UVB is something that happens in the real world in natural conditions. For example, when the ozone weakens. Oh, yeah, makes sense. Which has been linked, for example, in the past to major volcanic events, including certain mass extinctions. Like the end Triassic, episode 15. Like the end Permian, episode 45. Also like the 1980s when we started doing it. Whee! What they found is that in these pine trees that were treated, treated, I mean, treated sounds like it was a nice thing, but that were exposed to high levels of ultraviolet radiation, they did find higher levels of pollen malformations, so higher than the baseline of under 3%, but also that it affected what types of deformations showed up. (gasps) Typically, in the low-stress environment, they noted that one-wing and three-wing malformations were both commonly present, but in the high ultraviolet B trees, they saw a much higher number of three-wing pollen grains. That for whatever reason, the whatever way that ultraviolet radiation is impacting the development during the pollen growth, it led to a higher amount of that specific mistake in development. Interesting. So all this together, bringing it to the fossil record, means that if we can get a good sample of pollen from an ecosystem in the past, these researchers suggest these might be possible indicators of stressful conditions. That we know, at least based on this particular study, that certain trees will have under a certain amount of malformations present and a certain type of malformation present. So if we see higher amounts or a spike, for example, in those three wing shapes, that might be an indicator of certain types of environmental stress. That's very awesome. It, it is paleontologically diagnosing yes. the health of trees in the past. It's like when we find a, an ancient population and we go, well, they a lot of them had this feature and that's a sign of too much of this in their diet or too little of this yes. in their diet well, we talked or exposure. In, in episode 131 about Ashfall mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and how a lot of the animals buried at Ashfall, Nebraska have pathology in the bones that we see in animals that suffocate to death in an ash cloud. Yep. And like, yeah, that's what we're seeing. This is attempting to establish a foundation. This is one study looking at a very specific set of variables, but they're trying to start setting this foundation of this is what it normally looks like. This is what it looks like when conditions are kind of messed up. Let's see if we can find comparisons in the fossil record. Well, and the thing that fascinates me with it is that different, at least one negative situation of, of, overexposure to ultraviolet had a specific negative effect mm-hmm. it's the same way that i'm often baffled by how specific things can cause like like individual things 
can cause specific kinds of cancer. Right. Because, like, in my mind, it seems like cancer should just be cancer most of the time, just in different areas. But that, no, no, this causes this kind of cancer, and that kind of cancer behaves this way. Yeah. Because it's it's interrupting mm -hmm. that development in a specific way. Same thing that this radiation is doing. Precisely. So... It's really cool. It, I would love to know, to, to see this done with more types of pollen and mm-hmm. more types of conditions. And that was one thing that they did mention. Uh, this was either in the paper or in the article where they said, yeah, there are other stressors. Mm-hmm. You have pollution. You can look at pathogens. How do different things affect these species? And there was also a note, you'll like this, in the article where one of the authors was quoted as, as saying, in the population where they were treating the trees to high levels of radiation and seeing more of these messed up pollen grains the trees looked fine yeah yeah the trees themselves were not reacting you wouldn't know something was wrong the pollen is where you got this signal well it's it's how you can have something you know it certain things that you eat or certain lifestyle things can affect the egg and sperm the health of people's egg and sperm but it's not affecting the person's health yeah <laughs> they're fine but <laughs> your your reproductive cells are not doing great yes, you have to look at a specific part of the development to see this signal that's so cool which is very cool stuff well and i also and like and i'm sure that this is used to a degree but i, I now i'm also curious of like how much do we use that for modern forests you know to just take a sampling of pollen and go how are you all doing oh, yeah. in a way that we can't tell Surely Visually. we do that. Like, and if not, I, I sure well, hope that this is the impetus. <laughs> let's that start would be doing so it. cool. <laughs> very, very cool. Yeah. That news would have gone great in front of episode 135 about seeds. Yes, it would have. I'll, I'll start doing this in the news section. <laughs> yes, where, where we should have put it. <laughs> Speaking of things that look weird, my bit of news is about a tetrapod, an early tetrapod with a long toe. All right. So episode 77 mm-hmm. about the origin of land-dwelling vertebrates. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and episode whatever about toads. <laughs> someday, someday. TBA. T- <laughs> TBD. Toads episode. This research is by Jennifer Clark et al. in Nature Communications Biology. And the article is by Nicola Davis in The Guardian. So this fossil is from Lake Mississippian limestone from Scotland. That is about 330 million years old. So early in the history of tetrapods, the land-dwelling bony animals. Yeah, this is the East Kirkton limestone, uh, which was a prehistoric late at the time, way back when, and is well known for early tetrapod fossils. This is where we find the earliest known members of stem amphibia and amniotes, like Gotcha. This site has those earliest fossils to date, at least. The starts of amphibians and reptile ancestors as we know them. Yeah, this is really where we get our earliest evidence of tetrapods. Terrestrial tetrapods, at least. Mm. This is a new specimen. They named it Terminerpidon macrodactylus. What a fantastic name. I like it a lot. Terminerpidon macrodactylus. Terminerpidon. That's great. This this specimen included a decent amount of the creature... Uh, had a number of bones, a ribs, pelvis, left leg, hind foot. Overall, it looks like it'd be about half a meter. You know, okay. so a little bit over, you know, foot and a half-ish. Pretty standard for early tetrapods. They said it would have looked very lizard-esque, but with large feet and stumpy legs. And the part that's sticking out, literally, is its unhu- unusual 
hind limbs, its back feet, has a very long fourth digit. On their back feet, they have one toe that is particularly long, which is very unusual for animals from this time and other specimens found from here, but is kind of reminiscent of the long toes found on lizards. I was just thinking Mm -hmm. that if you look at a lizard's foot, a lot of lizards today, their toes are not all the same length, and they do often have one long toe that outstretches the rest. Yes, and they were comparing it to that. With lizards, it's thought that that extends their stride, that it gives them a little bit longer of a a kick when they're running or a step sure. for climbing. Yeah. We see that in a lot of hopping at, like kangaroos and mm-hmm. rabbits and mm-hmm. frogs, for example, have long feet for that extra push. Which could be something similar in this creature. They noted that it could also be to help them move around on different substrates. Oh. That moving through sand and hard ground, but also the, the shingly ground in that area, that it may have been to aid it in its traction as it was moving across various terrain. And this is exciting just because it increases the diversity of feet that we have from early (laughs) tetrapods, which means they were doing different things and we were already seeing some specialized locomotion or foot structures for walking around in some of the earliest terrestrial land-dwelling tetrapods yeah that some of the same strategies that we see employed by land-dwelling animals today were potentially already being used that had already developed way early on absolutely there's also just a neat note that the lake that would have been there would likely have not been sustainable for them to live in so that these would have been truly terrestrial tetrapods okay because scotland was equatorial at the time Mm -hmm. so the lake would have been very hot or maybe have not been chemically friendly to life, because a lot of the life that they find is suspected to have died because it got in the lake. Oh, <laughs> this was a death lake. Like that it was this was not a friendly lake. <laughs> so yeah, just a weird walking around dude from way back when. This is a fun kind of news, and actually all, pretty much all of our news this time <laughs> kind of illustrates this point where sometimes you have this wonderful situation in paleontology where a scientist or researcher will notice what seems like just a little inconsequential, like, look at this kind of amphibian thing. It has a weirdly long toe, right? Or look at this pollen. It has one too many little tiny winglets on it. Or this pterosaur, its pigments are a bit longer (laughs) than the round ones that... Or, you know, this this spider has a bit of sulfur around it, and it seems so minor, and, like, if you just delivered that part, people would be absolutely forgiven for going, okay, so? Yeah, woo. (laughs) Hooray, nerd. But (laughs) those little differences that we can spot can lead us to really significant interpretations about not only how these animals were living, right, this long toe tells us something about the way they were walking and the way they might have been interacting with their environment, but also helps us flesh out this evolutionary picture of when certain strategies showed up, right? This this creature has a walking strategy probably similar to modern-day lizards, even though it is over 300 million years old. That happened early. 
just like with the pterosaurs, this might be an indication that this colorful specialization strategy started way earlier than we previously thought. Absolutely. Well, it's it's what seem like very small details can sometimes lead to extremely helpful and sometimes monumental understandings and, and insights into yeah. something. So just because it seems like a small, like, oh yeah, weird, it's got, there were, there's algae here. <laughs> that could mean something very significant, so it's worth looking into. Yeah, that is science at its finest. And speaking of things that seem inconsequential, <laughs> but actually have a massive effect on the day-to-day livings of life here on Earth. Shall we zoom out? Let's zoom out and take a look at our moon. The, the moon. The moon. The moon. Why is it so important? But first, what's a moon? Let's talk about that after the break. Now, before we talk about our moon, let's talk about what a moon is is right ours is not the only one we do not have the only moon around moons are actually very common a moon is just a term for natural satellites satellites being something orbiting a body in space as opposed to an artificial satellite which is when we put a piece of technology to orbit a body in space yeah so this is something that ended up orbiting typically a planet but asteroids can even have like very large asteroids can have their own little satellites something got caught in the gravitational well of a planet and started spinning around it, orbiting around it, and it is now a moon. Moons are plentiful in our solar system. Uh, there's over 200 moons around the planets and various other large bodies in our solar system that we've observed. So they are not actually rare. It's actually somewhat unusual that we only have one. Yeah, because Mars has two. Mm-hmm. I know Uranus has a bunch, mm-hmm. and then I know Jupiter and Saturn have just oodles of moons. Yeah, Saturn and Jupiter have dozens each. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> each one has dozens of moons surrounding their massive bodies. And these moons can vary immensely. Some are much like our moon, little round spheroids, but many others are just space rocks. Just irregularly shaped, basically little asteroids that mm-hmm. got caught in the gravity well of a planet. And are not a little planetoid thing. It's just a rock. Just a chunk of rock. Just a chunk of rock orbiting that planet. (laughs) And so these all are moons. Our moon, capital T, the capital M moon, (laughs) which is its, that's its title. Official designation. Because all those other moons, like you've got Phobos and Deimos, Mm -hmm. Ganymede and Io and Titan, they all have names. Our moon is the moon. And it was named that because we didn't know there were other moons when we (laughs) named ours the moon. Yes. We didn't know there were other moons until Galileo saw some around Jupiter in 1610. Right. So for a long time, it was just the moon. And it went, oh, well, capital T, the moon. (laughs) (laughs) Our moon is a natural satellite. So it is like the other moons. It is unusual in a few ways, but also... There are other moons like it in our solar system. Uh, One, it is fairly large. Our moon is the fifth largest in the solar system. I knew it was big. I couldn't remember where Mm -hmm. it ranked. It has a diameter of about 3,400 kilometers, which the important part of that number is that's about 25% the Earth's diameter. So 
If you were to draw a line through the center of the moon, it would reach about a quarter of the way into Earth. Right. Four moons would line up next to the Earth. And so that is actually a huge ratio for planet and moon. That is the largest ratio in our solar system for a moon to its planet. No other moon is that big to the thing it's orbiting, Yes, planet-wise at least. There, I'm sure there are some asteroids that might have equally sized moons. <laughs> its mass is... Now this is where you get into that weird volume mass thing. Its mass is only a bit more than 1% of Earth's. Sure. It is 181st of Earth's mass. <laughs> so it is not nearly as massive as we are, but still that keeps it as the largest moon to its planet in our neighborhood. And this gives it a gravity of 0.16 of Earth's. Meaning if you if you had something that weighed 100 pounds here on Earth, it would weigh 16 pounds on the moon. 45 kilograms, 7.5 kilograms. Which is why you can bounce around on the moon. Exactly. Very low gravity because of very low mass. It orbits about 380,000 kilometers or 240,000 miles away from Earth. And while it is not the only large moon in our solar system, it is unusual for the fact that many of those are covered in ice and have their own atmospheres. Many of the other large moons, ours has basically no atmosphere. It has a very thin one called an exosphere. And some have said that this might be because it's so much closer to the sun that it's been blasted Mm. and lost anything that it might have had if it ever did. Or it has never been able to retain one because the sun is constantly hitting it with radiation. Yeah. And then one of the other interesting things about our moon, which is not unique to our moon, this is something other moons are known to do as well, is that it orbits us with the same side facing us at all times. Yes. This is known as a synchronous rotation. Its orbit and its rotation are at the same speed. So a day and a year for the moon is the same length of time. Right. This is like if I walked around you in a circle, but I kept rotating myself so that I was always looking at you. Yes. So when we talk about there is no dark side of the moon, but there is an opposite side of the moon that we down here on Earth don't see. It's always the backside. Exactly. As I say, there is always a backside of the moon that we will never view from Earth. You have to go out to the moon (laughs) and see that other side. Yes. Because it will never rotate around to face us. This means that the year for the moon, the time it takes to go around the Earth, and the time it takes to make a full rotation is about 27.32 days on average. A little less than a month. And that's why we has months. Right, that's (laughs) what it's based on. (laughs) Which also means that if you're standing on the moon facing the Earth, the Earth will basically be motionless in the sky. Oh yeah. The Earth will stay pretty much in the same spot, give or take, at all times, no matter what. So it will always be Earthrise if you're on the Earth-facing side of the moon. Yes. And if you're on the other side, you will never see the Earth. Ever. It just never points that you'll see the sun. The sun will come and go, but yes. you won't see Earth. You'll get sunrises, but Earth <laughs> is gone. I think we've touched upon this in the past, that it's really interesting to compare the Earth to other planets in the solar system because the Earth is unique in many ways. It's also really interesting to think that the moon is unique in many ways mm-hmm. compared to other moons. And that together, all of these unique, interesting features of our moon contribute to the unique relationship between our moon and our planet, which is what we're going to start talking about uh, basically for the rest of the episode. Absolutely. We are different from all the other planets and moons and shared systems in our solar system. Yeah, there have been some that have compared the Earth-Moon system to a a binary planet system, which means two planets orbiting each other. 
Right. Since we are so close in size compared to every other planet in its moon, other than dwarf planets, other than planetoids that have fairly equal-sized moons. Right. Pluto and Charon Mm -hmm. orbit a point between them. Yes, because they are really close to the same size. Mm -hmm. But as far as planet planets go, large bodies in the solar system, ours is the only one with a sizable satellite to really compare how that affects the behavior of that system in our solar system. We viewed out in others dueling planets that are full Earth-sized planets that are rotating around each other. Right. But we don't have a one nearby to look at except for us. Yeah. Tell us more about the system. Absolutely. Having a moon is a huge deal for the Earth. It has a major effect on us, uh, some of which probably seem very obvious. Uh, We will talk about those big obvious ones, but there are some less obvious. Having a moon, having our moon orbiting us, actually helps stabilize Earth's wobble, what we call precession, which is if you draw a line through the center of Earth where it's rotating around that line, you know, the pin on a globe that holds it in the cradle, where it's spinning, that will wobble every now and then, kind of like a tipping top. Yeah, that's what I always relate it to, is that a top will spin, but especially as it slows down, the axis of the top will start to spin in circles. Yeah, it will wobble, and our axis has wobble to it. The precession of Earth's axis does have a amount of wobble that we can measure over time. But having a moon helps stabilize that wobble so that it is less extreme, which also leads to more stable climates on our planet. Otherwise, our planet would be shifting between much more distinct extremes across time as it exposed different parts of the planet to more and less sun more erratically. I think our precession has a cycle of something like 40,000 years Mm -hmm. or something like that, which means that in our lifespan, that's completely unnoticeable. But over geologic time, that is very significant. Absolutely. So having that moon has stabilized us. It's acted as a regulator almost for our wobble cool it also has effects on the electromagnetic field of the planet so it is has notable side effects to the thing that protects us from all the deadly rays of the sun so it's that's it in another way that it has helped stabilize the global biosphere of earth Mm -hmm. but then the two most obvious the one that is most obvious to anyone is moonlight sure that by having a moon we can have bright nights yes i remember the first time i ever went out camping and it was walking around at night for a while before i realized how weird it was that there were no artificial lights and i didn't need a flashlight because it was a full moon yeah and i could just navigate i could just walk around by the light of the moon yeah without our moon it would be, you know, we'd have starlight and we'd have the Milky Mm -hmm. Way. So you wouldn't have a completely perpetually dark night, but it would not be nearly as easy to navigate or be active as we can be when there is bright moonlight out. Yeah. For anyone who doesn't know, moonlight is mostly reflected sunlight Mm -hmm. with a little bit of reflected earth light, light also reflecting off earth also reflecting off the moon back to Earth. Sure. Because we also (laughs) reflect light. Our planet is also a little bit shiny. Because the moon is a big gray rock, and it's relatively lightly colored, and it's relatively featureless, at least from our distance. 
So it's a, just a big flat rock that reflects light the same way that the concrete reflects sunlight on a, on a summer day. Well, and I think one of the easiest ways to demonstrate how effective a non-reflective thing can be at spreading light. I, Mythbusters did this at one point to make this point. Go into a dark room, you know, either by yourself or with a friend. Wear a white shirt or have a white thing and shine a flashlight at it and watch how much it lights up the room. Yeah. A shirt's great because shirts are completely non-reflective. No. But white, light colors reflect, bounce off more parts of the spectrum, of the visual spectrum of light. So it just shines a bit if light is shown on it. Yeah. So the moon acts as a sort of a false light Mm -hmm. up in the sky. But by far the biggest effect having a moon has on our day-to-day functionings here on Earth is tides. Very famously. That is... A huge aspect to basically any coastal community, but also just the functioning of our planet is the movement of water and tides across the globe. And it's caused by the moon. Absolutely. Very famously, the moon, the first waterbender. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So these are called tidal forces. How does the moon cause tides? This is both very straightforward and really complex, depending on what level you want to look at it at. (laughs) Let's hit it somewhere in the middle. Right. So simply, we have gravity, the moon has gravity, our gravity is holding the moon around our planet in orbit, Right. but the moon's gravity is much weaker than ours, but still affecting Earth. Yeah, we are pulling on each other. Yes. That's how gravity works. Mm-hmm. Now, our pull is by far the dominant one. The moon's not really going to be able to do much. Like, uh, there's a whole video in Kurtzkazat of what if the moon did crash onto Earth, mm-hmm. and they made the point of like... You may be wondering at what point you'll, things will be pulled off Earth, and the answer is never, because Earth is so much larger. Earth is enormous. That the moon will be torn apart before we ever are getting lifted off the ground. So the, Earth's gra- the moon's gravity is significantly weak compared to the Earth, but it's enough to have an effect. While these two bodies are pulling on each other, they are literally pulling on the shape of each planet, of the moon and the Earth. The closer sides pull on each other harder than the farther sides, and that causes a bulge. It causes these two bodies to bulge toward each other. Just like if you put, you know, uh, two magnets, if you had a cluster of magnets, the closest ones are going to be attracted to each other first as their magnetic fields are closest. We see these bulges in the moon and Earth. On Earth, there is a physical bulge. We can measure it with very delicate right instruments like in the actual crust yes like Like the the rock of earth does deform a bit it is shaped a bit like a rugby ball not Mm -hmm. quite that extreme but it is not actually a perfect sphere because it is being stretched toward the gravity of the moon the moon also has a similar stretching to it but on earth we have water and water deforms much more readily than rock does so we have these bulges of water on either side of the planet, one going toward the moon. Now, there's another one on the other side, which is often the confusing part of why is there a bulge on the opposite side of the moon? The counter bulge. And the point is that on the front side, well, that's where the most gravity is. Right. You're being pulled towards the moon. On the back side, that's where the least gravity is. So it's more relaxed. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yep. So you end up with two bulges on either side of our world that follow the orbit of the moon. Yeah, as the moon goes around our planet... That bulge is kind of following behind it, and it carries this slightly raised water level 
around and around the planet. And more accurately, even it's, it is moving with the moon, but we're also rotating within it because we spin faster than the moon orbits us. True. So we are really actually running through the bulges. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and this is a weird way because we think of the tides from our earthbound perspective as the water rising and falling. Yes. That we are standing on the beach and the water gets higher and it gets lower and it feels like a stationary thing. But it's not, it's a wave. Yes. It's sort of like if you do the wave at a football game, uh, that works for any country. Mm -hmm. At the football game, you do the wave. The water is rising and falling as this bulge moves around the planet. Yes. And because we rotate so much faster than the moon orbits us, this is why you get two high tides and two low tides a day. Mm. We rotate through both bulges and the dips in between the bulges. So the bulges are our high tides, the dips are our low tides, which are often called neap tides. And so as we spin through our 24-hour day, we hit a high tide. 12 hours later, we'll hit the other bulge for the second high tide. And in between those are two neap tides also offset by roughly 12 hours. Mm -hmm. And so we are treadmilling through this dish, this misshaped oceans on our planet. Yeah. Caused by the gravity of the giant rock floating around us. Yeah. Because the water on Earth is slightly less spherical than the Earth itself. Yep. Thanks to the moon. So that <laughs> our tides are being driven by this crazy system that we have. And we see tides on the moon as well. It doesn't have water, so they're not as aggressive, but Mm -hmm. the moon is misshapen, and as it is moving around Earth and moving between Earth and the sun and interacting with all these gravitational fields, it is also squished and warped and moved a bit, and these are strong enough to cause earthquakes, but what we call moonquakes Moonquakes. (laughs) on the moon, of it just being shifted and molded and squished and squeezed, that it will move the moon's surface enough to actually cause quakes. Very cool. Exploring this relationship is really fascinating and also really important because it is very easy, again, from our Earth-bound perspective, to think of the Earth as a system unto itself and the moon as sort of a happy little accessory that we have. It's very easy to think the moon's just kind of hanging out there. It's like an earring for the Earth. Yeah, but it's not. The moon has dramatic and important influences on our planet if we didn't have a moon existence on earth would be significantly noticeably different yeah well and it's it's so easy to forget that we know gravity is what's holding our solar system together but once you get past like all right that's why we're orbiting it gets very easy as you said to think of it as each planet as its own closed system but like the sun also affects our tides When the moon and the earth and the sun all line up, we have bigger tides. Mm -hmm. And when the moon, earth, and sun are at a right angle with earth at the corner and the moon and sun at 90 degrees from one another, we have weaker tides as they fight against each other. Each one pulling on our water separately. Because the sun, and I think it is always important to stress this, the sun is unfathomably large. Yes. And powerful. The sun is 93 million miles away, and it affects our tides, and it can hurt you. Yep. 
Yeah. <laughs> but this is not an episode about the sun. Yes, no. The sun will wait. <laughs> now, and this is really the core of it all. This Earth-Moon system is intrinsically connected and they affect each other in massive fundamental ways, as we just discussed. Which means all the life here on our planet has to adjust to the fact that there's a moon. Like, it's very easy to think that life on Earth has just been living on Earth, but it's been living on an Earth with a moon. Yes, and this, I, this is largely why we're doing an episode about the moon on our Paleontology and Evolution <laughs> podcast. All life on Earth has evolved in a system with the moon. Yes. All life on Earth, in the same way that all life on Earth is somehow adapted to the habitat that it developed in, inherits ancestral features from ancient habitat. Part of the habitat that all life on Earth is adapted to is the moon. Absolutely. Now, there are some famous uh, lunar responses, lunar behavior for different groups of life. One of the most common that you'll see referenced is synchronized spawning in response to the lunar cycle. Oh, yeah. You get those cool full moon spawning events or things like that. Yeah, where there are groups of animals that synchronize, that time their release of egg and sperm or release of young to the lunar cycle, typically to the full moon. Right, where it's bright out. Yes. Now, it, it is fascinating because very different groups will do this. You'll have invertebrates like corals famously doing this. Uh, but also certain species of seahorse and their cousins mm. have been known to sync up with the full moon. Episode 136. Lots oh, corals, of... episode <laughs> 36. Yeah, I forgot. <laughs> Many other fish are known to do this, especially reef fish. Amphibians are known to sync up with the moon. Now, why are they syncing up? The two main suggestions is that, A, it increases fertilization rate. By all of us spawning at the same time, especially if we're open water spawners and we're just throwing our eggs and sperm into the water, if we each just did it individually randomly, the egg and sperm gets diluted in the water so quickly right. that fertilization is not great. So all the different individuals of the species lining up their release makes total sense. So that, that way more eggs get fertilized and it is a more successful mating round, you know, more a more successful mating session. We see this with others that don't synchronize with the moon. You know, there are tons of mass spawning events, right. especially with aquatic animals. Another benefit to those mass spawnings, but also these synchronized ones with the moon, is that a, if we make a bunch of babies all at once, the predators can't eat them all yeah. in the first go. <laughs> There's no way they can eat all of these babies. possibly eat this many babies. <laughs> so syncing it up makes sense. Syncing up with the moon has a couple of ways that it might be more helpful. One is full moon means more dramatic tides. Right. And that can help with dispersal. The flow of water is more dramatic. So when you put all your eggs and babies out into the water, if they are going to be the kind that are going to float around for a bit before they settle down, then they can float more efficiently and get dispersed more aggressively. Right. It's like a plant spreading its pollen on a windier day. Exactly. It also can help with the reverse of coming back to the reef that you'll also see settlements tend to uh, uh, where the young settle back down, you know, the baby coral or anemones or what have you to attach to the reef will also tend to sync up with full moons. Oh, cool. And that's also when they will be more dramatically brought in with the aggressive tides. 
And it's not just as simple as, oh, someone turned the light on. I guess it's time for us to start making babies because it can get quite complex. The timing of when the sync up happens in regards to the lunar cycle. Many corals, they actually require a period of dark to trigger the spawning. That the gap between the full moon and sunset or sunrise, that dark period is required for them to trigger spawning. And it may be because they want the high tide, but they don't actually want the moon light. Gotcha. They don't actually want to make their babies easier to see, but they do want it during this time. Yeah, they're trying to find that place where the two major effects of the moon are decoupled. Yes. So it seems that, according to the research, moonlight may actually be a deterrent to spawning. If you had constant light in lab situations with constant light, the protein triggers for spawning were subdued. Got it. Which makes sense because it's the flip side of that other thing is if it's bright out, anything that wants to eat those eggs or or new spawning babies is going to be able to see better. Yeah, all visual predators have an advantage. And so they found that with well-placed periods of darkness, that's when you got corals to spawn. Which is so cool because we, it is very intuitive for us to think about how a lot of organisms on the planet modify their behavior and even their physiology to line up with sun cycling. Yep. That you do things, things during the day when it's sunny, when there's sunlight. But it is much less obvious that there are plenty of things that synchronize with moonlight and moon cycles. Absolutely. And that was one of the other examples. So there is something known as deal vertical migration in many, many ocean creatures, which is that during the day, they go down deep and hide. And during night, they come up to the surface to feed when it's safer. Deal is diurnal, typically. Right. Dial or deal. Mm -hmm. That is... This vertical migration that we see in tons of groups all around the world. Well, it was assumed for quite some time that this kind of vertical migration in plankton, because plankton's very well known for doing it, in Arctic regions was just not going to happen during those long winter months of no sunlight. Right. That you don't have a, a day. Yeah. Basically. So that migration was just going to stop during that time. Yeah. We talked about that in episode 114. Mm-hmm. But what we found is that they time with the moon. Instead of the sun. Yep. <laughs> Which means that they actually have to shift every winter from a solar day, 24 hours, to a lunar day, 24.8 hours. Oh, cool. And so they have to not only shift to using the moon, but also to a different timing period. And we see shifts in the behavior of these migrations through the month, you know, through each of the months, because our sun does fluctuate, but not in a way that we can typically notice it. Like when a, a typically active Sunday, you're not going to need extra pair of sunglasses. Right. You know? the, but uh, The sun is bright and that's it. It's the same amount of brightness pretty much all the time. But the moon, the Goes moon. Full of new. Yeah. <laughs> and so on full moons, they will notice mass divings when they dive way further in bigger groups to the depths because it is so much brighter than the other moonlit nights. Wow. So you can monitor how much of the migration, how dramatic the migrations are through the phases of the moon as they get lighter and darker. That's super cool. It's really neat. So they are still able to use their migration behavior up and down the water column in those winter months using the moon, but it is fundamentally a little bit different than when they're using the sun. It's great. Very cool. We also see lots of feeding behavior 
in animals when it comes to moonlight. It's been shown that moonlight enhances the growth of certain larval fish, especially reef fish that send their larvae out into the open water to just float around. Many of these baby fish are predators. They are looking for food and eating it. They're just itty bitty themselves. So they're kind of mixed in with that, you know, not quite small enough to be plankton, but just a step up from that. It has been shown that moonlight aids in the growth of these probably because it is aiding their foraging. It is making allowing them to eat more efficiently and it is suppressing that nighttime vertical migration of predators. Those animals that tend to come to the surface to feed at night tend not to come up as regularly or as in as large of numbers during a full moon because it's a bright night. Right. And predators can see you. And that's the whole reason those smaller predators were coming to the surface to feed was Mm -hmm. to avoid bigger predators. So the babies get a better chance of feeding while the predators that would be eating them are not coming up during the moonlight. So we'll actually see that exposure to moonlight, you know, lots of moonlit nights without lots of clouds will help the growth of baby fish. Neat. Now, baby fish are not the only animals that use moonlight to feed. We see increases in predation based on the amount of moonlight given throughout tons of ecosystems. Oh, yeah. Predators use moonlight to their advantage all the time. It is well known in many ecosystems that increased moonlight is going to be more dangerous for nocturnal prey because the predators can see you more easily. Uh, There are situations where the opposite is also true. Uh, Lions have been noted to be much more successful at hunting during new moon, you know, where there's basically no moonlight because they have very good night vision and they are really good at hunting in the dark. Yeah. And their prey are less likely to notice them. Yep. And so there have been studies on what has been called landscapes of fear. Oh, yes, I have heard (laughs) of this. This is a hypothesis that certain areas in the environment and certain times of the season or the day or the month, whatever it is, will be more dangerous for prey. And these are just times when times or areas where the predators tend to have more success. You know, the water's edge for a crocodile, nighttime for a lion. These are landscapes of fear. And the hypothesis is that we should see responsive behavior by the prey to navigate around these different landscapes trying to get their supplies and survive whilst trying to minimize their danger and exposure to the predators. And research on moonless nights found different types of behavior and different types of prey animals in Africa that they each responded slightly differently. Buffalo responded very little and just minimized by moving, uh, by their, their distribution. But gazelle and zebra seemed to make their decisions based off of the light levels and lunar phase. So they would behave differently depending on what phase the moon was in and how much of its light was getting through. While wildebeest just responded to lunar phase. They behaved differently depending on what phase the moon was in, regardless of how much cloud cover. And so the moonlight and how it affects the lives of these prey is very significant and even showing different behavioral evolutionary strategies in different groups. Which means that it is a feature of the planet Earth. Now, this is the only planet we know of with complex life, so, uh, (laughs) you know, but, but, but if there were other planets, Earth has this weird feature where ecosystem dynamics and behavior of life is, in some respects, on a lunar cycle. Yep fluctuates and changes over roughly a 30-day cycle. And it can be for using the light or using the tides. It also can be for navigation. 
because mm-hmm. tons of things navigate by the sun and tons of things navigate by the moon. I found one example of dung beetles, which are well known to navigate by the the light in the sky, either stars or sun. Celestial or... light. Yep. Because they want to get to a specific, get their dung bowl to a specific spot. And uh, that's there's a lot of mythology because of this, with like them rolling the sun across the sky because of how connected they are. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Some dung, some dung beetles will use the sunlight to navigate, but the sun's not always visible. You know, if the sun is set or if it's behind cloud cover, you can't always see the sun, but they can use polarized light, scattered sunlight across the atmosphere to still navigate by the indirect sunlight. There are at least two species of dung beetle that do this with polarized lunar light. Mm. That when the moon is not visible, when it's not in the sky or when it's behind the horizon or obscured, they can still use some of the polarized light scattered by the reflective moonlight by the atmosphere and navigate by (laughs) indirect moonlight. Wow. It is ridiculous how specialized some organisms have gotten to using the moon for its behavior. You know, it's not just, oh yeah, look, the white ball's in the sky. It's, no, no, my vision is tailored to its specific light. Right, specifically the light bouncing off the moon, which changes the light. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, the the light we get coming off the moon has been on a journey since it came from the sun, right? As that light is reflected, it is not going to be perfectly reflected. Yep, that's why our nights aren't as warm, a full moon night isn't as warm as daytime. Yes, it's weaker light, it's also slightly altered light in terms of what frequencies are making their way to us so you can't do all the same things on a moonlit night that you can on a sunlit day and then there are also examples of organisms using the moon not at night sure because the moon orbits around us and sometimes it's in the sky during the day i've seen it there absolutely that's when we don't have a moon at night mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's on the other side of our planet <laughs> while we're facing away from the sun. And there are animals whose behavior adjusts when the moon is in the sky during the day because it is still changing the amount of light we're getting. Oh, weird. Singing birds. Dawn songs of was specifically the white-browed sparrow weaver, which is a bird. Sure. They sing in the daytime. The males sing. And they were able to notice that while the moon was in the sky during the day, males began singing on average 10 minutes earlier than they usually would. And if it was a full moon, they would sing for 67% longer that their performance period would be a bit more than half again as long because of the moon. Huh. And not even at night. Mm -hmm. Just because there's another ball in the sky. Weird. Yeah. So the moon's not just a nighttime thing. It affects us day round all the time. It is so cool and weird. Wow. And then, of course, speaking of the way that the moon affects life all day round, right, 24-7, there is, of course, the impact of the tides. Yeah, like just the direct impact yeah. of water moving up and down. And we could we could talk for hours about what the tides do to life, but the first obvious thing that comes to my mind is that there are entire ecosystems that are tidal ecosystems. Yep. We've talked about these uh, tide pools and tidal flats where there are whole communities of organisms whose entire existence and behavior and lifestyle is based on the fact that there are some parts of their habitat 
that are under the ocean sometimes and not under the ocean other times. Yep. And then, of course, there's tons of other examples, all, all communities of organisms that have evolved to exist under those conditions, yeah, which, again, wouldn't exist in another planetary system. Yeah, that they have synced up their behavior and lifestyle with this shifting habitat that is shifting on a regular schedule. Yeah, and that's, of course, not even to mention, and this is a little bit of a an additional degree of separation, yep. the impact that tides can have on, for example, the effect of storm surges. Oh, yeah. That, like, a hurricane is worse at high tide. Yep. Because the storm surge is going to be big. Just, there's all sorts of ways that this moon-earth connection has cascading domino effects that impact life all over the planet. Yes. And unsurprisingly, that life includes us. Yes. Uh, human civilization and human life has been responsive to the moon from the get-go. You can find it not only like in our mythology that every culture has a story about the moon and whatnot. Right. We've got moon deities mm -hmm. and all sorts of that. We've got moon knights. we got moon knights. <laughs> but also, we have scheduled our habits off of the lunar cycle for so long. Oh, yeah. A bunch of cultures have a lunar calendar. Mm-hmm. And this is where we get that concept of a monthly cycle, because the moon is on that. That's where we get that timing. That's why it's called a month. Yes. <laughs> Same reason Monday is called Monday. Yes. <laughs> Even we have adjusted inherently to the presence of the moon. While we're talking about behavior and the moon, I'm sure some of our listeners have it rattling in their mind, because I certainly do. <laughs> the persistent myth that the full moon affects behavior, specifically the idea of lunacy. Yeah, that's why it's luna. Lunacy, that the full moon makes, th th to use uh, an inappropriate way to describe it, makes animals go crazy. Yeah, well, it's, I've heard teachers and I've heard mm -hmm. people, especially people working with children being like, it must be a full moon or something, because these kids are right. just, they're out of control. It is a very persistent mm -hmm. concept. Uh, and I, I want to mention it because it might be on people's minds. But just to say that as far as I'm aware, there's no really consistent scientific correlation to suggest that the full moon impacts behavior in that way. No, it, it the moon, the full moon definitely impacts animal behavior right. for sure. There are even there's even evidence that just the gravitational and geomagnetic effects of the moon may have effects on behavior that it's hard for us to even detect mm -hmm. that it's not a, it's not always just tides or day or moonlight right and of course moonlight means that some animals are going to be more active yes. during the full moon sure but there are some fundamental behaviors that are linked to the lunar cycle but it's not just that those animals get weird right when the moon's full that's not what it, there is a behavior right. that syncs up with it and I didn't find even a mention of it in any of the sources I looked up about humans getting right. weird during the moon, during times of the uh, phases of the moon in any of the sources I looked up. When I've read about the topic of the, the full moon affecting human behavior, I most often come across articles about confirmation bias. Yes. Yep. So, yeah. Just to put it out there, uh, now that doesn't really seem to be a solid thing. It gave us calendars. Not lunacy. Right. Also werewolves. <laughs> yes. Of course. That is a scientific fact. Oh, yeah, yeah. No. Like, keep your silver nearby. <laughs> plant your wolf's, wolf's bane at the door. 
Stay safe, everyone. This podcast should not be used as medical advice. <laughs> so no aspect of life on our planet can be observed without adjusting for the fact that it is in a binary system between the earth and the moon yeah you you saying it phrasing it that way is such a cool way to phrase it because it make it makes me imagine a scenario where some alien beings are trying to understand life on earth but they don't for some reason they don't know there's a moon yeah it'd be like trying to observe distant space without recognizing that black holes are there yeah and you're like why is everything moving the way it is over here yes why is life behaving that it would not make sense if you didn't know we had a moon. Well, it would be as alien to them to watch the ocean surge forward <laughs> throughout the day as it would be for us for a beach to stay mostly motionless. So how weird would that be? To just be like a lake, <laughs> but big. I hate it. I don't like that thought at all. <laughs> like, the moon is just part of our lives. Yeah. And after the break, we'll talk about how we got the moon. Ooh, we're going to go in deep time. Yeah, why do we have a moon? (laughs) Let's find out. The origins of the moon are actually much more heavily debated, especially historically, than one might assume. You know, I feel like... The moon feels like such a matter-of-fact aspect of the Earth that it also seems like we should have a pretty good handle. But the way we got our moon, especially the way our moon is, has actually led to a ton of research and a ton of study to figure out why we have the moon that we do and why it has the features that it does. There have been numerous hypotheses as to how we got our moon specifically, throughout the years, but by far the most common and most heavily supported and most often cited of these theories is the collision theory. That early in Earth's history, 4.5 billion years ago, right at the the, the earliest days, when the solar system was new, that we were hit, collided with a Mars-sized planetoid like, it still wouldn't have been a planet because we were still, like, finishing <laughs> cooking. Right. Like, so this was in that, what is it, the nebula? Yeah, where we were at the accretion disk. Things were still coming together from the dust. Yes, accretion disk is what I was thinking of, where you had the sun had formed and you just had these dust bands surrounding the sun, gradually particles coming together gravitationally to form masses mm-hmm. that would ultimately become our planets our moons our asteroids and such but for a while in the early early i say days but the early millennia Mm -hmm. would have been much more cluttered and chaotic than we think of our solar system today yeah things impacting one another things being ejected from our solar system or into the sun yep that did not make it into orbit one of these a mars-sized body which means a spheroid That is about half the size, diameter-wise, of Earth, and about a tenth the mass, came and collided with our planet. Probably had formed near this, our proto-Earth, the pre-Earth, is what a lot of people will call it, and smashed into us. This would have been an extremely, an exceedingly violent impact. 
it is thought that most of the mass of this new, this other almost planet fused with Earth. Mm-hmm. And that chunks of the impactor and of pre-Earth then were spread out into an orbit around our planet. Right. There was a big blast and a bunch of that debris, what, what didn't adhere to the forming planet, got caught in our orbit. And so we had a accretion disk of our own for a while. Just dust and rubble and chunks of two planets. Yeah, I imagine it would have looked kind of like Saturn's mm. rings. Yeah, just a lot messier. <laughs> and that over time, the bits that did not get sucked back into Earth, that were far enough from our planet, what we call the Roche limit, the point at which you can orbit our planet without being sucked back down to it by gravity, this material started to accrete, started to build up into the moon and eventually formed its own spheroid, a orbiting body made from the clutter of two colliding planets. Yeah, incidentally, that sphere shape is something that happens because of gravitational mass. If a body is big enough, its own mass will pull it in, in this nice, equal-in-all-directions sphere shape. That's why the Earth is the shape it is. That's why planets tend to be that shape. Our moon is big, it eventually would have taken on that same shape. Yeah. This potentially led to a number of interesting aspects of our Earth-Moon system. Uh, One, Earth is one of the densest planets in our solar system, and it eating another planet is could likely have been what led to that. (laughs) You got a bunch of extra material. Yep. And that extra material is important. Uh, Our Earth has enough mass and radioactive elements that it is predicted that our core will stay active and warm throughout the lifespan of our solar system. And without that extra mass, that might not have played out the same way. Oh, interesting. Being a massive and dense planet could be why we have an active core and could be a big part of why we have an electromagnetic field and atmosphere and aren't being cooked alive by the sun at all times. So our planet is a bit unique structurally, and it could very likely be to this (laughs) collision. So keeping in mind this collision scenario this would mean that the moon not only currently affects the behavior and features of the earth but has since since the process that may have formed it yes the way the moon formed also can be seen in its layering the internal structure of the moon as it would have been a fully molten structure for a while and had a just global lava magma ocean as that cooled and began to crystallize probably within about 100 million years of its forming, the heavier, denser materials would have sunken deeper into the moon and the lighter, less dense materials, minerals, and so forth would have risen to the outermost layer. And we see that it has what we call differentiated. It is a differentiated world. Just like Earth. Set layers to its crusts and its cores and its mantles. Cool. Incidentally, if you're wondering how we study the inside of the moon, I don't know many details But I can tell you that those moonquakes we mentioned earlier could be used the same way that we study earthquake waves on Earth to interpret the internal structure based on how those seismic waves travel through the interior of the planet. And we have definitely left seismometers on the moon. Mm -hmm. So we are absolutely monitoring those quakes like we do here. Every time a quake quakes, it sends those seismic waves through the moon, not the planet, through the body. And different materials affect the trajectory of those waves. Now, before we go further, as was mentioned, there are other hypotheses that have been put forth, some of which are still being 
researched and looked into by certain in, you know individuals. Most of these I did not find quoted or referenced by major sources. So I don't know. I don't think many of these have huge amounts of research support. But the reason that there are other hypotheses is there are some aspects of this theory that don't sync up with all of our observations or clash depending on how you view it. One of the big ones is that for especially with early simulations of the impact, looking at the physics of how that material would behave, it predicted that the moon should be mostly like 80%-ish impactor material, not earth material. Mm-hmm. That the moon should mostly be parts of that Mars-sized collider. But when you look at the density of Earth and the moon, they are very similar. Okay. And the isotopes are very similar. The Earth and the moon are very, very comparable in their makeup. In their composition. In their composition, exactly. Which is not what we would expect. It would be very unlikely for another randomly formed body in the solar system to be almost identical to our planet. Right. We should expect differences. So based on those simulations, it brings into question the what we're seeing to the to sync it up with the collision. Though there have been others that have been able to look at new simulations or adjust and find ways that it does work. So okay. that is not a definite like big old hole in the theory. Right. And like you said, that still is the major idea. Yes. Supported by our evidence to explain the existence of the moon. But there are discrepancies that we're still trying to parse out that have led people to come up with other hypotheses. And I wanted to list just a few to give an idea of what other avenues have we considered. Mm -hmm. One is that we were not hit, but two planets collided, bigger, both bigger than Mars by a bit. And then the resultant debris became Earth and the moon. Gotcha. That so. we were born simultaneously from a collision, but it was not the Earth being hit. The Earth was also born from the rubble. Right. Which has a, a sort of poetic <laughs> yeah. feeling to it, that the Earth and Moon are the, are siblings of the same event. Yeah. Uh, there have been those who have suggested that it's less dramatic and that Earth, the Moon just formed out of the same accretion disk material that the Earth formed from. Yeah, just next door. Just was formed next door. Others have suggested that instead of one big impact, it was lots of impacts from asteroids that just continually blasted material out into our orbit, Mm. and that slowly formed the moon. There have been those that suggested that we captured our moon. That it already existed, Mm -hmm. it had already formed, and then got caught in our gravitational field. But that hasn't really been considered since the 80s. So a bunch of those are things that we've seen stuff like that happen in our solar system. There were two kind of wacky ones that I don't know how supportive these are. I saw these mentioned a couple of times, but I think both of these are now fairly discredited. One was called the fission hypothesis, which was that early Earth was spinning so violently it launched a chunk of itself into orbit. (laughs) And then the other one is that the moon was formed via nuclear explosion, that the rotation of proto-Earth reacted radioactive materials near its core and exploded and launched a hunk <laughs> oh man out to be the moon i don't I, think these are <laughs> right strongly supported i don't think you'll find uh, these in textbooks I, very often both of those hearken to and i don't remember any details about this but i remember hearing a what i think was presented as sort of a fringe idea of the pacific ocean being the hole that the moon came from. Yes, yep, yeah. <laughs> that it, it, That is the chunk. And again, I, we're talking about this, but these don't, these are not 
well-supported ideas. No. There have been many hypotheses. Uh, like we said, by far the collision, the Aridia of that first collision scenario that you described is our go-to explanation these days. The most common one I saw as actually, like with significant recent research, was the multiple impacts. Right. That instead of being hit by a single Mars-sized planet, we were hit by a just barrage of asteroids mm -hmm. that kept ejecting chunks of Earth into orbit. However it happens, the takeaway in terms of our geologic history is that the moon has been with the Earth basically the entire history of the planet. Yes. It seems to have formed during the early formation of Earth, which is not always the case. Uh, I've heard it uh, discussed that some other planets may have gotten certain moons more recently, or I think there was something going around. I don't know if this is true, but there was something going around about how Saturn's rings have been hypothesized that they might form a moon at some point. Yeah, that they might still be an accretion disk that's just very stable. Right. I don't know if that's true, so don't quote me on that. But the idea being that it's not out of the question that it what we could be discussing is, yeah, the moon showed up around the Silurian period, mm -hmm. but that's not the case for Earth. Absolutely. The moon and the Earth have been a shared system. They, they've basically never been individual bodies they have always been part of the same system yeah the timing i saw for one research paper was that our moon likely formed in the first 20 to 100 million years of the solar system right like of our solar system being a thing in that first little gap we got a moon which is the vast majority of earth history Earth is around 4.54 billion years old. The moon would have been around for basically that whole time. Yep. Which means our Earth-moon system has been adjusting to one another since basically day one. And I say adjusting to one another because it is not as stable as many might think. Yeah, the relationship between Earth and moon today is not the same as it has always been. And it is constantly changing as we speak, our relationship with our moon is in flux and specifically is degrading. Yeah. Our moon started much closer to Earth and has been steadily moving away. Now, the reason for this is the same reason we have tides. Tidal forces pulling on the two are not only affecting the shape, but the rotation of our two bodies. This is why only one side of the moon faces us. The bulging of the moon, we've basically grabbed onto that front bulge and not let go. It's like an invisible tether. Yes. We are holding onto that closest side of the moon and we're not allowing it. The earth is not allowing it to rotate away from us. Yeah. Our gravitational pull keeps it locked in that orientation. But it wasn't like that at the beginning. At the beginning, both Earth and the Moon would have been rotating separately from one another, both spinning on their own, regardless of what the other was doing. Right, like the Earth and the Sun. Yes. We don't really care. We're just spinning and orbiting, but over time, every time the Moon moved around, we pulled on its bulges a little bit more and slowed it down and slowed its rotation until eventually we slowed it to where it was in that synchronous rotation. When this happens, when we have a system like this, a physics system like this, energy must be maintained. Momentum must be maintained. And if the moon starts rotating more slowly, that is loss of physical momentum energy, so it has to adjust. And so the moon started to move 
further away as its rotation slowed. So that means from the very, very early onset, the moon would have been rotating around us. It also would have been you know, much closer, but it has moved away and began to rotate more slowly so that now it matches its orbit. That may sound like, all right, we've stabilized, but nope, it is a moon-Earth system. The moon's doing the same thing to us. It is also exerting its tidal forces on our planet, creating the bulges and grabbing onto them. Not nearly as effectively. Sure, it's much smaller. Because it's itty-bitty. But it is slowing our rotation. Yeah, the Earth's rotation has been slowing over time. So our days have been getting a little longer. We're taking longer to spin around, just bit by bit. Which means, eventually in the long run, the conclusion of this physics experiment is that we would both be synchronously locked to each other. Right. Face the, the same side of the planet and the moon would face each other at all times. That you could run a rope from one end to the other and connect it to either. <gasps> space elevator. And that you would have <laughs> no movement basically on either end. Right. Now, I don't think that is likely to happen. No. For reasons that maybe we'll discuss here in a little bit. <laughs> it is, from what I saw, the calculations for how long it would take for Earth to become tidally, we call this tidal locking, mm -hmm. become tidally locked with the moon would take longer than the sun has left to live. I would also, my guess would be that it would be that the moon is still slowly moving away from us now, and we might lose the moon well, and it, before it, that happens. It is moving away from us, but because now we're slowing down. So it moved away the first time because it slowed down. Now it's moving away because our rotation is slowing down. Now that we're losing momentum, momentum must still be maintained. So that distance that continues distance. to mm -hmm. increase. So yes, the moon, move, I forget what the number is. It's Do you have it? I do. So as far as its distance moving a year is about 3.8 centimeters a year that it is moving away from our planet. We gain a few centimeters of distance from the moon each year. It is slowly moving away. And according to those calculations, we have been losing, we have been lengthening our days by about two seconds every hundred thousand years mm -hmm. for the last little bit. Now there's more to that because it has not been consistent. Mm. If you take that and calculate it backwards, it becomes very clear that that can't have been consistent the whole time. Sure. Because it would end up with a moon so close to Earth that it would be sucked into Earth. Right. So it can't have been two seconds every 100,000 years the whole time. Now, at this point, uh, we should point out that if you're wondering how we know all this stuff, a lot of this comes, not all of it, a lot of this comes from physical models. Yes. Based on our understanding of gravity and based on our understanding of energy and by looking at other bodies in the solar system, we can, and I, we, astrophysicists, mm -hmm. can very effectively estimate how the system has evolved over time. We also now have the technology to measure yes. the change in rotation of the Earth and the changing distance between here and the moon and then use that to run models back, to basically run calculations. If this is what it is now, let's project back a hundred, a thousand, a million, a hundred million years and see how this has changed over time. Exactly. We can, with laser precision, literally using lasers... Yep measure not only the shape of the moon, but its movement away from us by timing how long it takes the laser to return. So we know for sure what our current rate of moon loss is. And based on simulations and estimations for the earliest days of the Earth-Moon system, an Earth day would have been about six hours long. 
vastly shorter. But with our current rate, if you time it back, it doesn't sync up with that. And it goes back to a point where the moon would have been so close that it would have been destroyed by Earth's gravity. Just rolling along the surface like (laughs) Katamari. (laughs) (laughs) Which means that the rate today must be higher than it has been on average throughout Earth's history. Okay. It appears, based on data, that for the last 640 million years, that rate has been pretty consistent. Okay. So, and that is conveniently basically the entire time we've had animal and plant-like life on Earth. Yes. Yeah, so our fossil record has been consistent with how quickly we're losing the moon, mm-hmm. or how at least how quickly it is distancing itself from us. Right. It, it, it's it's had enough. Yeah, <laughs> it is it moving away. Some space. We are being extremely slowly ghosted by the moon. <laughs> but the two billion years preceding that, at least, you know, getting estimates earlier than that are more difficult. It is likely that it was five times slower that the moon was not leaving as quickly, which introduces a bit of a paradox because those earlier days should have been more violent forces, like more high energy and quicker rates of momentum loss because the moon was spinning faster and slowing down more quickly. Mm -hmm. And we were spinning faster and slowing down more quickly. So it should have been more extreme. And there are a couple of ideas as to why it might have shifted. One is just that a big part of our tides is the water. And the water moves differently based on what the Earth's surface is like. Mm. And that we may have been in a more resonant state for our tides more recently than we were in earlier. So, yeah, the way our water is moving across our surface affects the speed at which the moon is leaving. So the Orient, we've talked about this, episode 122, we talked about plate tectonics. Mm -hmm. And we've talked a bunch in our episodes about how the surface of the Earth has changed in terms of the position of the continents, how much continental crust there is, the orientation of the oceans, the relationship between the oceans, the way currents move across the surface of the Earth. You are saying now, based on this information that we have, that the features of the continents and ocean on the surface of the Earth impact the relationship between the Earth and the moon. Because if we're slowing down the movement of water and making the tides more sluggish to move across the surface, the energy is not going to be lost as quickly. Wow. (laughs) So it seems, according to the estimates, that we hit a peak dissipation rate of our momentum about 400 million years ago, and it's been declining a little bit since then, but that we are losing the moon faster these days than we were in the early days of our planet. Wow. Yeah. The idea that continental and oceanic orientation can impact the relationship between the Earth and the Moon might be the seahorse anus moment of this episode (laughs) for me. Well, here, I'll take it one step further. Oh, please do. Very recent studies have found that global warming also affects this. Okay, of course it does. Because hot water expands. Oh, it sure does. And it behaves differently, and it can actually increase our day length. Does that mean... That us warming the planet makes us lose the moon faster? Yeah, basically. That this is going to increase the length of days, and that is that is the whole process that has been causing the moon to have to adjust its orbital distance. So one more reason <laughs> to fight human-caused climate change. We are scaring away the moon. Yep. Now, I didn't see anything that ever said whether we think the moon will get so far away that we'll 
actually lose it. Right. It could end up being that it will always be with us. It just will be real far away, real small. Tides will be less noticeable. Right. It will have less light for, to give us. I have heard it said that eventually we might reach a point where it is no longer possible for us to experience a full solar eclipse. Yes, exactly. Where a solar eclipse happens when the moon passes directly in front of the sun from the perspective of us on the sun-facing side of the Earth. These days, the moon is big enough and close enough that it can basically block out the whole sun in our sky. And it can cover large areas of the Earth. Yes. But as it continues to move away from us, eventually, and I think this is like a hundreds of millions of years into the future, it won't be possible for the moon to fully block out the sun anymore because it'll be too far away. Yep. And as noted with Earth locking with the moon, it's very likely that the sun will explode before any of these experiments, any of these systems reach their logical conclusion. We only got about five billion more years for this system to evolve. (laughs) Now, this concept of our lengthening days is not just based off of simulations and estimations. It is also based off of direct records preserved here on our planet. Yeah. The geological and fossil record document shorter days in the past than we have today. Because as we mentioned earlier, all life on Earth has always been evolving within this Earth-Moon system. As the Earth-Moon system has changed over time, so has what life is doing in respect to the Earth and the Moon system. Absolutely. By far one of the most common cited examples, especially in the fossil record, are fossils of organisms that grow on a daylight cycle, Mm -hmm. that grow using daylight, or in response to daylight at least, and grow less when the daylight when sunlight is not present so they have a day night cycle to their growth patterns right. we see this in some corals mm-hmm. for example and other shelled marine organisms where you have kind of like tree rings yes but whereas tree rings are rapid and slower growth seasonally right it's summer and spring is fast and then winter and fall is slower it's day night day night day night day night and this is found in the skeleton the shell or the coral skeleton where they are laying down those minerals and they're going to lay down them more quickly while they're eating and growing more aggressively during the day versus at night when they aren't doing as much growth. So they're not going to lay down as much mineral structure. Counting these ridges or growth lines can give us annual estimates, an annual number for day-night cycles in a year based on the seasonal cycle that we can also follow through these ridges. Yes, some of these animals have seasonal cycles like tree rings Mm -hmm. and day-night cycles within them. So you can count how many day-night cycles are there within one full seasonal cycling or within one year. Now, it's not going to always be exact. Uh, For instance, one study that was looking at corals found that the annual growth line count for each individual would vary within an individual, that you wouldn't get the exact same number because it's not precise. Right. You know, a super cloudy day might mess up your count. uh, Ever so slightly. A weird thing that causes that organism to stop growing correctly, you know, if it got sick or something, could also mess up the count. But 
counting multiple years worth of lines and multiple individuals was able to give the researchers an average. And this study was specifically looking at Devonian corals. So just a bit more than 400 million years ago. And every count they got had more than 365 lines per year. On average, they were looking at about 400 with the lowest being 385 and the highest being 410, which means an average day length of 22 hours and as little as almost 21, 21 and a half hours or up to almost 23 hours, depending on which counts you're, are more accurate. And the important part here is that a year has not changed. No. The amount of time it takes the Earth to make a full rotate, a revolution around the sun is the same. So if you have 400 days in a year instead of our modern 365, that means your days must have been shorter. Yes. Which means spinning around more quickly. Earth is rotating faster. And we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I this was one of my, when I first heard about this, like back in college, it was one of my first major holy cow moments. Yes. Of what we can learn from the fossil record, that we can look at ancient corals, and there are other studies looking at other organisms. Yeah, rudis bivalves have mm-hmm. the same thing has been done. And calculate how fast the Earth was rotating based on these growth patterns in these ancient organisms, and say, yeah, 400 million years ago, a day on Earth was 21 or 22 hours instead of 24. Yep. And that, to tie it back to our episode here, is because of the moon. Yep. A side note on the the bivalves. These are the Cretaceous rudis, the one that were kind of like barrel or tube shaped. We talked about them. Episode 36, because they were major reef builders in the Mesozoic. They've done the same thing with the chemical lines and ridges of their skeletons and found a similar thing that there were 372 days a year on average those were much more recent yeah those were in cretaceous so they were younger so 23 and a half hour days almost if you had gone back to the cretaceous your clocks would have been almost right right. very minor jet lag but just a little bit it wouldn't have kept up (laughs) Uh, but this also is evidence that those animals were responding to daylight meaning they likely photosynthesized Oh, yeah. So I like this study because not only does it give us a day length count for a past period in our Earth, but also, yeah, if they're responding this heavily to sunlight, they probably were eating sunlight. Right. This also allows us to make these incredible inferences about like, yeah, this is how much daylight Triceratops would have seen. And yes, versus how much the earliest tetrapod like Tiktaalik would have had shorter days than Triceratops did. Your days and nights would have been more brief as vertebrates were first coming onto land versus what the dinosaurs were dealing with versus what we're dealing with. Yes, and that ties back into our discussion about how so many organisms on the planet adjust to moon and sun cycles. Those cycles have changed over time. Yeah, well, it makes me think of the fact that if you took one of those early land plants and brought them to today, they probably wouldn't be able to make it through a day of sunlight. Even if they were in direct sunlight back then, they might not fare as well today because it's they're getting too much sunlight. They're in sun for too long. Yeah, that's it's. It'd be the same as if there was you needed a specific amount. It's like, well, you need we need ten hours of sunlight for this to work. Well, if you go back too far, you won't get ten continuous hours. Yeah, <laughs> that wouldn't have worked back then. We also can see this just in the geological record of our planet, Milankovitch cycles, Mm -hmm. which I feel like we've mentioned before. I don't remember where. we have. These are the 
kind of periodic, kind of cyclical cycles we see of the adjustment to Earth's orbit and rotation and position. Right. The tilt changes over time. Mm-hmm. The precession, that wobble you mentioned, changes over time. The shape of the Earth's orbit around the sun changes slightly over time. These are all the Milankovitch cycles. And those come together to form these kind of, these patterns that we can find in our geological record. And those can also tell us about the number of days we're seeing in a year and help us reconfirm the distance Earth to the moon. These are very useful because they can help us look way further back than any of our fossils can. The preservation of these patterns is called rhythmites. Mm -hmm. Rhythmites are basically just like those cycles in the growth of of wood in a tree or in the skeleton of a coral. Rhythmites are cyclical layers laid down in a geologic deposit. Yes. So you can get rhythmites that are based on the tides. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. These are much longer term cycles in geologic deposition. Precisely. And rhythmites from 1.4 billion years ago showed years that had 469 days in them, which gave about 18 to 19 hour days. Wow. Very short days. And you said this was one point? 1.4 1.4 billion 1. years 4 old. 4 billion years old. So this is not, no animals ever had to deal with an 18 no. hour day. No. This is much farther back. And so not only is this just a weird quirk of our planet that our day, that if the day ever feels long to you, it's only getting longer. Yep. Every single day. Yep. Is infinitesimally <laughs> longer than the last one. So you are right. <laughs> uh, this is why we do leap seconds. Yep. Yep. Exactly. We have to adjust for this lengthening to make sure our clocks and calendars are actually staying accurate after several years you'd start to notice a lag behind you'd end up having extra days at the end yeah because you were taking up each day was taking up too much space (laughs) and you would have more days than you needed but there are other effects of lengthening days that have been noticed there is now it was a possible i think this research is maybe there might be a connection between day length and oxygenation rates of our planet this was looking at microbial mats, uh, measurements and models of like proterozoic cyanobacteria, either fossil evidence, but also just analogous bacterial mats and right. observing their response. Comparing with modern examples. Exactly. And showing that longer day length, longer days, increased the export of O2. You said oxygenation, and I went, oh, you're right, because more sunlight means more photosynthesis, which means more oxygen. Which means that as we look at the lengthening days, there does seem to be some syncing up to oxygenation events, which are big deals in our fossil record, because a number of those sync up with mass extinctions Mm -hmm. and extinction events. So longer days are not just, oh, well, that's weird, but actually fundamentally can change some of the systems on our planet and how they work. Yeah, we talked about the, the some of the big oxygenation events. Episode 75, we talked about that, and then we touched on it in episode 124 about Snowball Earth. Yeah. Now, I don't know how solid this support is. I think yeah. this was very new research, uh, very that, recent in the last couple of years. That's hard to correlate. So th- th- there needs to be more looked into. But a longer day is not just something that changes your sleep cycle. Right. It can affect the way our planet functions. As with the first half of the episode where we kind of we, we were kind of touching on the ways the moon impacts the Earth system. And the same thing is true in the fossil record. Thinking about 
all the various ways the moon is represented in the fossil record. Yeah. There's the changing length of days. There's the tides, right? Yes. There's those tidal rhythmites. There's also fossil tidal ecosystems. Yeah, things that seem to be very similar to the tide pools we yes. see today. The tides not only have given rise to tidal ecosystems that we find in the fossil record, right? those tidal organisms, but also certain types of rocks and rock formations form in tidal regions. Yeah, that's true. Where the sediment is being moistened and covered in water and then exposed and dried out and you get mud cracks and you get certain patterns of deposition that can preserve certain features. Like, for example, tidal flats are a great place to find fossil footprints. True. Because this is soft sediment that animals are walking across that then gets buried by the next tide. So there are certain patterns in geologic deposition and certain patterns of what kinds of fossils we find yep. that exist because of the influence the moon has on the Earth. Yes. And you mentioned the fact that as the moon gets farther away, the tidal forces are weakening. And as with all of these things, it is a very minor change oh, yeah. in the grand scheme of things. Like, no one listening, nor your offspring, nor their offspring, no. nor their offspring, will be able <laughs> to actually notice any of the things we're talking about. But it does imply that some of those features of our living system, what lives where and certain communities that exist in these areas and even types of deposition might change slightly over the history of the planet as tides themselves become less prominent. Yes, absolutely. So just the moon has left its mark all up and down the geologic and fossil record of our planet. Yeah, well, it's, it, I feel like one of the biggest things that this emphasized for me is that you really can't talk about earth you have to talk about the moon earth system yes you can talk about earth and not mention mars that's oh, yeah. fine that's, easy mars really does not have much of an impact but the moon earth system it'd be like trying to talk about earth and ignoring that the sun's there yes exactly. i was gonna say the sun and earth is a system yes you can't really ignore the fact that we have a sun the day night cycle is fundamental to everyone except for hydrothermal vents and caves. So <laughs> and even then. And even then. Kind of. So <laughs> you can't ignore the presence of the sun. You can't ignore the presence of the moon. Yeah. It is fundamental to how our entire biosphere works. Much like last episode, uh, last episode we discussed fossilization and we talked about how having new insights into that process kind of adjusts and and better informs basically every other discussion we've ever had on the podcast. Yes. This episode makes me have like one of those movie flashback scenes where we're now flashing back across <laughs> every previous episode and every time the moon is there. Yes. It's in the background. <laughs> it's like when I replayed Super Mario Odyssey and I was suddenly aware that the moon is in every kingdom. Yes. You can see the moon there. Yeah. <laughs> yep. There's no escaping it. <laughs> now that's about going to wrap up our discussion of the moon. Uh, but it's not going to wrap up the episode yet because we have one section left. As we mentioned earlier, we have a Patreon. And you get benefits by being one of our patrons. And one of those benefits is that you can submit questions to us that we will answer here on the podcast. 
what is our question for this episode, David? Today's patron question is not about the moon, oh. but it is about other bodies in space. Yay. So, you know, we're on the same the same theme. Serpentine has a question about the asteroid that hit the Earth at the end of the Cretaceous period. Cool. Uh, episode 5, the KPG mass extinction, linked to a massive impact from a rock from space. Serpentine wants to know, when that asteroid was approaching the Earth back then in the end of the Cretaceous, how long would it have been visible from Earth? Would it have been sort of a distant glimmer in the sky for a while? Or would it have suddenly appeared? And that's as far as our, you know, naked eye goes. But also with our modern technology, how much of a warning would we be able to have? So with with or without modern technology, how far ahead would we know that that six-mile rock was headed towards Earth? Fantastic question. And I had a ton of fun looking up the info to answer this question. The best synopsis of it I found was actually in the Kurzgesagt about the KPG impact. So this is a YouTube video. The YouTube channel Kurzgesagt, which does their in-a-nutshell videos that just take uh, sometimes random topics and sometimes classic questions. And they have one about the end of the Cretaceous minute by minute. Gotcha. What's the title of that episode? That is The Day the Dinosaurs Died, Minute by Minute. Cool. So if you want to look it up on YouTube, The Day the Dinosaurs Died, Minute by Minute. They describe that, and they cite their sources, so I was able to confirm through their sources that they quoted, that it would have started out visible probably as a little dot, uh, you know, looking like another star, and would have been that way for like a few weeks. Okay. Would have actually been there and getting a little bit bigger during that time. By the end of that period where it was visible like that, it would have eventually been brighter than the evening star. And within about six hours of it hitting us, so right before impact, it would have looked like a smaller moon. It would have been a notably sized object in the sky. Wow. So still small, but another little object up there. Then it would have faded. It would have entered Earth's shadow. Basically, the atmosphere would have obscured it. And we wouldn't have seen it up until it was about to hit. And the way they put it was great. For a few hours, the illusion of continuity would have upheld. (laughs) And I think we talked about this in episode five, that once it reached the atmosphere, this would have been very fast. Oh, yeah. It would have reappeared briefly. And they said it would have looked like a quarter-sized sun. And then as soon as it hit the atmosphere, a couple of seconds before it goes from there to the ground Mm -hmm. and then impact. Wow. That's more than I thought. Yes. I I, kind of was expecting that it would just be nothing and then one day an asteroid shows up. Yep. Now that's if you're on the side of the planet facing its impact. Of course. If you're on the other side of the planet, then you have no clue. Right. (laughs) Uh, So it would have been visible, but only for like a month, maybe. Like, from it first showing up in the sky to it colliding with the ground. Cool. So not a lot of time. It's not like you would have gotten used to it. It would have been weird the whole time. As far as how early would we be able to notice it, that I couldn't find, like, a number on Mm -hmm. how far away we think. We, with our modern technology. If we had all the tools we have now and were able to go back then and see it, but there, we do have a ton of systems in place to look for these asteroids mm-hmm. and to look for similar near-Earth objects, uh, NEOs. Uh, the 
Catalina Sky Survey, the CSS, is a NASA-funded project. It is uh, looking for these for these objects. It is under the Planetary Defense Coordination Office. Cool. Like we have a organization specifically, just in case, <laughs> telling NASA and other organizations and funding them to look for these things. Keep an eye out. One of them was given the task to document 90% of all near-Earth objects, and I think they've only made it about halfway. Okay. So it's... So far. So far. So it's not an easy task, because there's a lot of them. They can be hard to detect. If they're coming from the direction of the sun, they can be almost impossible to detect. (laughs) Uh, NASA also has ATLAS, the Asteroid Terrestrial Impact Last Alert System, which is a series of telescopes around the planet that can actually survey the whole night sky every 24 hours and are looking for these near-Earth objects and have actually documented a number of asteroids, very small ones, before they hit and were able to determine roughly where they should have hit and people have been able to find them after the fact. Oh, cool. So, like, we have systems in place for this. Now, another paper citing, uh, I think it was like a press you know, a, a event with NASA talking about it, or maybe I didn't find the paper on it, but that current estimations say to really be able to do anything, we'd need like five to 10 years of advance notice. Mm-hmm. So just how long the dinosaurs had would not have been enough time. No, uh, so that's that, enough time to panic. That's yeah. You can make peace, <laughs> but that's Take it. that trip. You were hoping to go to go on. How soon I wasn't able to find time for that, but we'd need to see it real soon to be able to do anything about it. Right. Uh, There is, though, (laughs) last year, this is year 2022, it should be hitting later this year, NASA launched DART, the Double Asteroid Redirection Test. Oh, yeah. Which is launching a, they said about a fridge-sized spacecraft at a near-Earth asteroid, not one that we think is going to hit us, but one Mm -hmm. that we've been able to observe for a while, and we're going to just hit it, just launch it into it, and see how much is it actually deflected so that we can get some data on how effective is this technology? Would we be able to redirect an asteroid if need be? Oh, cool. So that's the, 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 the first solar system game of pinball. Exactly. Begins. Yes. So we have the systems in place. The real issue is, would we have caught it years right. ahead of time? Because space is real big and the night sky is real big and... <laughs> I don't know which direction the asteroid would have been coming from when it hit us. Right. If it is coming from the same direction the sun is... That's much harder to see. Then we basically can't detect them. Because if we point our telescopes that way, it will damage the telescopes. Mm-hmm. So if it, if an asteroid comes in line with the sun to Earth, then we... At current technology, from what I read, we aren't seeing it. Wow. So, it's a, luckily it's just that one spot. But Sure. We have the potential to have seen it, but not guaranteed. <laughs> now, earlier we talked about the impact that the moon has on the tides, that the moon is moving water, and that depending on its position, that mo- motion of water can be stronger. So the question that I'm curious about is, for how long would the Cretaceous oh. impactor have augmented the power of firebenders? That's a very good question. Yeah, we'll have to reach out to Kurtz Gazette. Yeah. For a month, they would have just gotten steadily. Yeah, just stronger and stronger, stronger and stronger. And then uh, everyone's really sad. And then everything Nothing changed. Nothing can stop us. I am invincible. Thank you, Serpentine, for that question. That is a real thought provoker. Uh, and of course, as always, thank you to all of our patrons, who uh, those who send in questions and even those who don't. 
We appreciate all of your support. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sticking with us. If you have questions, comments, opinions about things we mentioned in this episode, let us know if there's things you want us to talk more about. Or if you have aspects of this that interest you, let us know. Comment. Check the episode description for all of our social medias, for our new Discord server. Yeah. And for our Patreon, if you'd like to become a subscriber. Thanks to everyone for requesting this episode. Thanks to our new patrons again. Keep your eyes and ears out for updates on Croc and Snake Months. Yeah. Which are coming up this summer. We release episodes every fortnight. So uh, two episodes every moon cycle. Uh, We've been, uh, we planned that 138 episodes ago. (laughs) (laughs) This episode is coming out just in time for everybody to listen to it and enjoy the final episode of Moon Knight. Yeah. So this is a very timely uh, episode. Also, this episode is coming out in a month, which of course are based on the moon. So yeah, we're upon layer. Yeah, there's a lot. We we really line this up. Oh, yeah. This is how this is how much thought we put in. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the day after this episode is advertised online will be a Monday. Uh, See, see, it is just don't say we don't plan stuff, man. We this you might be listening to this on a Monday. This is all the behind the scenes planning. That you don't we even just know don't, about it. We don't typically make a it's big deal about It's just automatic for us. Yeah. We're just that big brained. <laughs> That's how well we've adjusted <laughs> to the lunar cycle of our Earth Moon system. Uh, let's leave. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.